0: Father, you are the great teacher, the great rabbi, Jesus. And we love to come and just sit at your feet and listen. Lord, I can imagine all of us just sitting out there on the hills surrounding the Sea of Galilee and some of those grassy amphitheaters with you standing there, the sea at your back, and you begin to teach. And, and we just find ourselves caught up, raptured in your words, in the sound of your voice. Father, the power of the words coming out of our Lord Jesus. And that truly is is how I feel when we open up the Bible, that we're right there, sitting at your feet, and we're just saying, Lord, would you teach us and show us what you want us to know and bring to our hearts and to our minds, even, Lord, if there are things we've already been taught, if we need to hear them again, then show us in your perfect timing what you want us to know. And Holy Spirit, tonight in these two psalms, these two amazing psalms that cover such a great amount of history, would you show us not only history, but the heart of our God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 105 is where we are. By the way, just in case you didn't know, today marks the 25th of Kislev on the Hebrew calendar. So let me be the first to wish you Happy Hanukkah. <laughs> starts today, that eight-day celebration that involves a looking back for the Jewish people every year, and granted, it's been somewhat, it's kind of become the Jewish answer to Christmas, you know, Jewish kids, since they don't get Christmas, they get eight days of presents, and I, as a kid I heard about this, and I thought, wait a minute, <laughs> we get one day? They get eight? How is that fair? I believe my dad said, well, they are God's chosen people. So I figured, okay, then they get eight days. Perhaps you know this, but the history of Hanukkah is interesting. It goes all the way back to 168 B.C., this eight-day celebration, because it involves a rededication of the temple, the second temple, there in Jerusalem, in 168 B.C. You see, a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, an evil Greek Syrian ruler, He came in, flooded into Jerusalem with his army, and he conquered the city, conquered the land round about in Judea. He defiled the temple. The way he went about doing that was spilling pig soup all over the inside of the Holy of Holies, pig's blood and flesh just everywhere, to defile it for the Jews. And he set up there in the Holy of Holies an idol to the god Jupiter. And tried to turn the temple into a place of Zeus and Jupiter worship, worship of the Greek gods. By the way, the setting up and the defiling of the temple, setting up of this idol there, was an early type of something Daniel had predicted. Daniel the prophet, back in Daniel 9.27, called it the abomination of desolation. When the temple itself, when the Holy of Holies would be defiled, the abomination of desolation. And there were many Jewish scholars after this time who thought, well, that must have been what Daniel was talking about. Jesus comes along and says, no. That's not what Daniel was talking about. Matthew twenty four fifteen he says, When you see, future tense, the abomination of desolation, then those in Judea need to flee. You need to get out. Well, people after that thought maybe it was A.D. 70, the abomination of desolation, when the temple was destroyed. Problem is, no idol was set up in the temple at that time. Titus didn't come in to set up an idol to any Roman gods. The temple was just burned down. It was not the abomination of desolation. And it has never happened. So this is something yet to come. Jesus points to the tribulation. Paul points to the tribulation for that. Saying that that will happen when Antichrist sets himself up as God in the temple. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And all that tied back to this... One little thing that happened, or connected, interestingly, to Hanukkah. Now, the Jewish people celebrating Hanukkah are not thinking about Antichrist. They're thinking about how Antiochus was kicked out of there. And what happened, do you know the story that they got Antiochus and his men out, Judas Maccabees and his his sons led a mass revolt, And they freed the Jewish people and they went about cleansing and rededicating the temple. They got it all cleaned up and they they relit the golden lampstand there in the temple, the menorah. But after lighting it, they realized something. We only have a day's worth of oil. And it's going to take at least eight to make the right kind of consecrated oil for the lampstand. And we only have a day and the lamp's going to go out. But for eight days, they watched as that lampstand burned steadily. One day's worth of oil burned for eight and the Jewish people, they saw it as a miracle. And so eight nights of Hanukkah celebrated those eight days of the lampstand burning there in the temple, and they believed the miracle occurred as the oil burned steadily. Rick, do you believe that? You might wonder. Well, I can say this with absolute certainty. The Bible the Bible does not divinely direct Hanukkah as a holiday. However... <laughs> It was divinely celebrated. John chapter 10, verse 22 tells us at that time the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. The Feast of Dedication is Hanukkah. It's also called the Feast of Dedication. And it was winter and Jesus was there. He was walking in the temple and the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around Him and were saying to Him, how long will You keep us in suspense? If You are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus says a few things, and down in verse 30 of John chapter 10, He says, I and the Father are one. How cool is that? The light of the world shows up for Hanukkah. The festival of lights. The feast of dedication. You see, it's called the feast of dedication, but it's also called the festival of lights Hanukkah because it's about dedication, and it's about illumination. And Jesus, the light of the world, illuminates the Jewish leaders right there at Hanukkah as to who He is, that He is the light of the world. I and the Father are one. And yet the Jewish leaders remained in the dark, looking directly at the face of light. And they missed Him for who He was. A decade ago, I was in the dark about most things Jewish. Oh, I knew they had potato pancakes and they played the dreidel game. That's about all I really knew about Judaism. I had some Old Testament stories, you know, under my belt from my childhood, growing up, going to Sunday school, but it was never applied. It never made sense. I always looked at the Bible as two books, one that was past tense and one that's present tense, and that's the New Testament, until I began to study and read and come to understand and recognize the incredible debt that we and all Christians owe to Israel. In fact, the world really owes a great debt to Israel. Paul said in Romans 9, verse 4: to Israel belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is overall God blessed forever. Amen. In other words, gang, without Israel, no adoption, no covenants. No word of God kept and preserved throughout all these generations. No promises and no Christ. Well, couldn't God have chosen to use another people? Absolutely, but He didn't. He chose Israel. And Israel was the people, are the people through whom He brought all of this. And it's through this people God chose to reveal the light of the world. Now I begin with all this, you may be wondering, just because Hanukkah kicks off today? No, but because tonight, interestingly, Psalm 105 and 106 is the story of Israel. We get to go back and revisit this now. We get to have kind of a review of some things related to Israel. But it's interesting, Psalm 105 and Psalm 106 take a different perspective. Psalm 105 speaks of the faithfulness of God to His people. Whereas Psalm 106 speaks of the fickleness of this people to their God. God's faithfulness, Israel's fickleness. And the scriptures here return us yet again to the significance of Israel and God's program. Israel, God says, I want you to be aware of this. You need to understand. And I don't know about you, but I know a lot of Christians, and myself included for most of my life, who do not or did not understand the significance of of Israel and all that God was doing, is doing, and will do. And the Lord says, I want you to be aware. I don't want you to be ignorant of these things. Paul writes in Romans 11.25, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. Now it's ironic to me that today marks the beginning of Hanukkah, the feast of illumination and dedication because as we read through this what I believe you'll see and you'll recognize is God calls all people to be dedicated to Him and through our dedication to Him to have lives illuminated by His Spirit and in the truth. Dedication and illumination. Great themes that we're going to come back to again and again tonight as we go through these two psalms. Dedication and Illumination. Let's look at Psalm 105. It's a psalm of David. Now, David's name is not attached to it, but we know this is a psalm of David because if you were around, oh, about a year and a half ago, we were studying through 1 and 2 Chronicles. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, we read part of Psalm 105 already. 1 Chronicles 16 recounts that story of, of David bringing the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem the right way, the correct way. He brings it up, puts it in the tabernacle that he had set up there. There's a great day of worship and, and praise happening. And on that day, First Chronicles 16, verse 7 tells us, on that day he assigned Asaph and his relatives to give thanks to the Lord with Psalm 105. With this psalm. First Chronicles 16, verses 8 through 22, word for word, precisely record the first 15 verses. Psalm 105. So we know that David wrote this. So listen in. Verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord and call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Speak of all His wonders. Glory in His holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. You know, what's interesting is before we had a great commission, Israel had one. Israel had the original great commission to make known His deeds among the people, as the psalmist, as David proclaims here, to speak of all His wonders. This was not about Israel holding it in and keeping all this truth to themselves. The plan, the design, the call that God put on their lives was to be a light in the world. Isaiah 49, verse 6, the Lord said, it's too small a thing that you should be My servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel, I will also make you a light of the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. A light to the nations. Israel, that's the call. But there's a key that I believe is missed, or was missed, by the Jewish people. A key to being a light to the world. A key to keeping a great commission. And seeing as we have a great commission to go into all the world and make disciples... Jesus calls us to that, Matthew 28, 18-20. We would do well to understand this. How do we go about keeping the Great Commission? How do we go about speaking the truth? How do we generate that in this world, in our lives? Look at verse 4. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His face continually. You want to be an effective light in the world? you got to be plugged into the source. You want to bring the truth of Jesus to the world, you've got to be seeking Him, His strength, His face, continually. And this is something we sometimes lose. In the busyness of our lives, and I am totally preaching to the Wednesday night crowd, because you're here. But you cannot and you will not be a light to the world if you're seeking all manner of other things rather than the Lord. If you want your light to so shine and glorify your Father who is in heaven... You gotta be looking at your Father who is in heaven, seeking your Father, pursuing Jesus at every opportunity. And I've told you before, I'm I'm in the Word quite a bit during the week, just in study and preparation. And it's not enough. It is not enough. For me personally, I still find myself flickering and getting dim, sometimes dim-witted, depending on the day. If you want to be a light of the world, You've made the right choice tonight. You be in the word. You be in the presence of God. You seek his face continually, as David says. Non stop. Always looking for the things of God. Always seeking understanding in the Lord. And by the way, the more dedicated I am to him, the more illuminated I'll be to those living in darkness. Dedication, illumination. Feast of lights. Feast of dedication. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1 says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. So again, it's not our light, it's not our glory, it's not our goodness, it's His glory. And as I look to Him and understand Him and seek Him and walk in His Spirit, that light shines. It cannot help but to shine. Ephesians 5 8, Paul says, You were formerly darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of of light. Verse 5. Remember his wonders which he has done, his marvels and the judgments uttered by his mouth. O seed of Abraham, his servant, O sons of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God, his judgments are in all the earth. He has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham, and his oath to Isaac and then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, I will give you the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance, when they were only a few men in number, very few, and strangers in it. David's pulling out this truth, going all the way back to Abraham and saying, you know, they were just there's just a handful of them. they just Abe and Sarah and the kids... You know? And then that branched out a bit, and there were a few more and a few more until there were dozens of them. You know, the number eventually would get up to 70. And they're there as strangers, sojourners in the land. And it was at that time that God said, This is your land. I'm going to give this to you. It's a promise to come, a covenant I make with you. You know, He made that covenant with Abraham. And what's really cool about this, and the way David lays this out before us is that this covenant, this land covenant for Israel is far-reaching. He says back there in verse 8, to a thousand generations. Now that might not sound like a lot until you think about generations. Until you go back a few generations. Do you realize if we start now and go all the way back to AD 70, and if we're just taking a generation being from one age to the next, which would be 30, 35 years. So I'm not getting into the biblical generation or what exactly that is. I have some opinions on that. We talked about that recently. But if you're just talking a, a typical generation, what a sociologist today would say is a generation, 30, 35 years. Go back all the way to A.D. 70, and you have just gone about 60 generations. Go back all the way to the day of Abraham. And you've gone about 120 generations. And God says, my covenant is to thousands. (laughs) He spreads it out far. He says, this is an everlasting covenant. And it's a great picture that David paints here. And note the path of the covenant, verse 9. He made it with Abraham. But not just with Abraham. You see, if it stopped there, then not only the Jewish people, but all of the Arabic people would have claim to the land. But it wasn't just to Abraham and his oath to Isaac. Not Ishmael. And then he confirmed it to Jacob, not Esau, for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant. The path goes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. God did not extend his covenant, this land covenant, to Ishmael or Esau. Now please understand, the Arabs were blessed. The Lion of Ishmael was incredibly blessed. The line of Esau, amazingly blessed, and as a matter of fact, in the land today, the Jews only have about one-fifth of the entire land. No, wait. One-fifth of one percent of the entire Middle East is that little postage stamp, Israel the rest of the land, with all the oil and riches and wealth that comes with it. All of that given to Ishmael and Esau. But God said, this land, this little postage stamp, that's for my people Israel, Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, so that no one would misunderstand. And if our politicians in the world today would just read their Bibles, we wouldn't have the problems that we have right now. This everlasting covenant... Ezekiel And Ezekiel 48 comes back around and and shows the exact allotments of the land given to all of the tribes of Israel, to to Dan and Naphtali and Asher and Manasseh and Ephraim, Reuben, Judah, the Levites, Benjamin, Simeon, Issachar, Zebulun, and Gad, all 13 tribes. 13? I thought there were 12 tribes of Israel. Well, actually there are 13. Because remember, Joseph is split into two, Ephraim and Manasseh. Joseph's sons become the two tribes. Okay. So there's all 13, and they're all listed there in Ezekiel 48 in their future inheritance in the land. Now going on, verse 13. "...and they wandered about from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, and He permitted, that is God, He permitted no man to oppress them. And He reproved kings for their sakes, "'Do not touch My anointed ones, and do My prophets no harm.'" And you may recall a couple of stories involving old Abraham and Sarah. Genesis chapter 12, around verse 10 through 20, Abraham and Sarah, they travel down to Egypt. And Abraham, though he has the promises of God under his belt, looks at his beautiful wife Sarah and says, Better tell them you're my sister. Because if they know you're my wife, they're going to kill me and they're going to take you. So they tell everyone that Sarah is his sister, and Pharaoh takes Sarah to be part of his harem. Oops. Oops. Of course, Abraham doesn't save it, say anything. He's you know trying to save his own neck. God steps in. And he protects Abraham. And he protects Sarah, by the way, who Peter said is a godly example of a godly woman because she just obeyed Abraham. Abraham said, you need to go with Pharaoh. She said, all right, I'll go. God protected them both by plaguing Pharaoh and his household. And then later, in Genesis chapter 20, Abraham does it again. He says, and they're quite a bit older now, but he still looks at Sarah and goes, You're still quite a babe. So tell them you're my sis. They tell him. They go to Gerar, king of Abimelech, and he sees Sarah and says, I want her in my harem. Brings her in, and that night the Lord speaks to Abimelech in a dream. Genesis chapter 20, verse 7, he says, Restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. What's the point? God protects His anointed ones. God prote- Look at verse 15 again. Do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. Can we fast forward that right now to us today? Because John, the apostle in 1 John 2.20 says, You have an anointing from the Holy One and you know. What are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying that you are anointed ones. You are the anointed of God. If your life is is in Jesus Christ, you have an anointing. And you know you're the anointed ones and God protects His anointed ones. Not because they're so holy. Abraham was not acting holy in either of those two cases. But because he is holy. And once he has put his mark on you, once he has chosen you, anointed you as a son, as a daughter of his... You are under the protection of God. Anointed brothers and sisters, listen to me. We need to embrace our anointing in Jesus Christ with confidence and assurance that we walk as protected people. And I say that because it concerns me when Christians give the enemy more credence than he should be given. And I hear it happening all the time. I hear all kinds of conversations, people saying, I've just been under attack. I'm under attack. I'm really having a. You know, it's like, wait a minute. You're under attack? You're on the side of Jesus Christ. We're on the offensive, baby. We're not on the defensive. We're not pulling back. We're the anointed of God, protected by God, and yet often Christians sound to me more like victims than victors. Well, which side are we on? Have we not won? That doesn't mean you're not going to be persecuted. It doesn't mean we won't go through tough times. And it doesn't mean the enemy's not going to attack. He certainly will. But God protects His anointed. Well, Rick, that's that's for Abraham in the Old Testament. Okay, let me give you some New Testament verses. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 3. The Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Pretty clear. First Peter 1 Peter 1.5 You are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So good news, anointed ones. You're protected. Stand strong. Be confident. You are walking out of the anointing of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the coming King of the world. It doesn't get much better than that. Verse 16. Let's go on. And He called, this Lord called for a famine upon the land. Remember, Jacob's there and the boys and they're living in the land of Israel. It's not Israel yet, but they're living in the land of Canaan and a famine hits. Well, David illuminates for us here that God caused it because he wanted to move them on out of the land. He has a program in mind here. He called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread and he sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They afflicted his feet with fetters and he himself was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. That word tested in the Hebrew also translated refined. God is refining Joseph throughout his life through all these things that happened. You know, he's sold as a slave by his brothers and then he gets picked up by, by Potiphar and then he gets thrown into prison. And then he gets pulled out by Pharaoh and all through the trials and challenges, Joseph's being refined. So that when his brothers show up, he doesn't just have their heads cut off. <laughs> he doesn't just punish them, throw them into jail. He brings Dad, the whole group, down. It says in verse 20, "...the king sent and released him, the ruler of peoples, and set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler over all his possessions to imprison his princes at will that he might teach his elders wisdom." just amazing this puny little Hebrew from Canaan doesn't even have a country of his own comes into Pharaoh's country comes into Egypt and becomes second in command over the whole country by the power of God and verse 23 Israel also came into Egypt thus Jacob sojourned in the land in the land of Ham the land of Ham as opposed to Turkey the land of Ham here the Hamitic people Africa 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 is the direction that Ham went. After Noah landed the ark, after the flood subsided, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, three boys, and they all went different directions. And you can read about it in the Table of Nations, Genesis chapter 10. Ham headed south. And so from Ham, the line of the Hamitic people, which would be Africa, and that's, so. That's why it's called the land of Ham. There, and he caused his people to be very fruitful and made them stronger than their adversaries. You know, over those four hundred years, the Hebrews began to grow in strength, the number blessed by God. And then he, that is the Lord, verse twenty-five, turned their hearts. Uh, yeah, turned their heart to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. And he sent Moses his servant and Aaron whom he had chosen and they performed his wondrous acts among them and miracles in the land of Ham. And here we go, he begins to describe the plagues. He sent darkness and made it dark. And they did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Now listen, before I go any further, let me explain something to you. Uh, Verse 28 can be confusing. When people read this and say, He sent water and made it dark, and they did not rebel against His words. Well, but Egypt was in rebellion, right? The they being talked about in verse 28 goes back to the subject of verse 26, Moses and Aaron. It's talking about Moses and Aaron. So we read, He sent darkness and made it dark, and they, Moses and Aaron, did not rebel against God's words. In other words, even though God's judgments on Egypt were severe, Moses and Aaron said, okay, Lord, if this is what you want us to say, we'll say it. If this is what you want us to do, we will do it. I have never thought about this before. But can you imagine being Moses and God saying, all right, Moses, I want you and Aaron to go out to the edge of the Nile, and I want you to strike the water with Aaron's staff, and I'm going to turn it to blood. Really? Really? I mean... Do you think possibly in the human mind of Moses or Aaron, at any point they might have gone, Ooh, <laughs> it's kind of gross. I'm going to bring frogs out of the Nile all over Egypt. I don't like frogs, Lord. <laughs> Is there another way? Gnats, flies, all the, the plagues. These were serious. These were life-destroying things. And yet Moses and Aaron had the faith to say, Lord, if you say it, we'll do it. And it doesn't matter what it is, and it doesn't matter what it looks like. We will do it if you call us to it. And they did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. And their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. You're throwing back the covers to go to bed? Ribbit. (laughs) (laughs) He spoke, and there came a swarm of flies and gnats in all their territory. And he gave them hail for rain and flaming fire in their land. He struck down their vines and also their fig trees and shattered the trees of their territory. He spoke and locusts came, young locusts even without number, and ate up all the vegetation in their land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He also struck down all the firstborn in their land, the firstfruits of all their vigor. The ten plagues laid out there. And notice what, what David has been saying throughout this psalm. Over and over and over, everything describing Israel, everything that happened with Israel, he ascribes to God. He says again and again, he sent Moses, his wonders acts were performed, he sent darkness, he turned water to blood, he spoke, he gave, he struck, he spoke, all the way down. I just highlighted all the he's in Psalm 105 because it's all about God and his faithfulness to this people. Then he brought them out, verse 37, with silver and gold. And among his tribes, there was not one who stumbled. See, so Cecil B. Namil got it wrong. Because if you watch the movie, you know, with Charlton Heston as Moses, they're all coming out, and there are some people that stumbled as they were traveling. Not according to the Word of God. He protected even their feet as they wandered along. Egypt was glad when they departed. Yeah, no kidding. For the bre- the dread of them had fallen upon them. And he spread a cloud for a covering and a fire to illumine by night. That is so powerful there. And it's so compassionate too. Isn't that great that God looked at his people and said, You're going to be out in the desert. I'll give you I'll give you some shade. And at night it's going to be cold. So let me give you some fire for warmth and for light that you can see where you are. And they asked, and he brought quail. And satisfied them with the bread of heaven. Of course, manna. He opened the rock and water flowed out. It ran in the dry places like a river. For he remembered his holy word with Abraham his servant. And he brought forth his people with joy. His chosen ones with a joyful shout. I like that. He brought forth his people. The picture there is birth, gang. He birthed his people with joy. And that's always how God births a people. When you were born again, it was a moment of great joy in heaven. It was a shout of joy as the angels rejoiced to know that you now were part of the team. You now were born again. And He gave them also the lands of the nations that they might take possession of the fruit of the people's labor, so that they might keep His statutes and observe His laws. Praise the Lord! And any time you see praise the Lord in the New American Standard translation, it's hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, this psalm ends. Hallelujah, it closes out. The song of the birthing of a nation by God. And now we come to Psalm 106. A poem of the betrayal of the nation against God. Psalm 105, about the faithfulness of the Lord. Psalm 106, about the flickering fickleness of Israel. Watch now as this people, called to illuminate the world, barely seem able to stay lit. The contrast is stunning. Praise the Lord, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Who can speak of the mighty deeds of the Lord? Or who can show forth all His praise? How blessed are those who keep justice who practice righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, in Your favor toward Your people. Visit me with Your salvation that that I may see the prosperity of Your chosen ones, that that I may rejoice in the gladness of Your nation, that that I may glory with Your inheritance. We ascend like our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have behaved badly. Oh, the psalm begins so gloriously. In the same way Psalm 105 ends, Psalm 106 begins with a glory and a praise to the Lord, but then it shifts very quickly. It starts to change. It starts to get difficult. And you realize the psalmist is is crying out for salvation. Crying out for rescue. Crying out to be saved. This psalm, though it begins similarly to Psalm 105, changes course quickly. Verses 4-6 through and the rest of the psalms seem to indicate that this psalm was not penned by David, but was penned during or after the captivity in Babylon. This is a a later psalm put together, paired with Psalm 105, and paired beautifully. It belongs here. But perhaps Daniel wrote it. Or something, maybe Jeremiah, or or even the eight Levites. I know you all remember the eight Levites. If you go back to Nehemiah chapter 9, There's a song sung by eight Levites and they're all named in Nehemiah chapter 9 and they sing the song and the song is very similar to Psalm 106. So there are those who think, well, it was the Levites' psalm who wrote this as the people came back from captivity and were trying to get started again. But whoever wrote Psalm 106 is looking back from a place of punishment along the path of Israel's disobedience. Watch this, verse seven. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your abundant kindnesses, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, He saved them for the sake of His name, that He might make His power known. Absolutely stunning. God brought them out of Egypt gloriously, wonderfully, saved them. The ten plagues happened. Israel saw it all. They saw their marvelous deliverance. They march out there. They end up within a few months at the Red Sea, backed up. Here comes the army of Pharaoh, and they rebel. Did God bring us out here just to kill us in the wilderness? They start freaking out. Their faith is gone. It's incredible. They didn't remember all that God had done, and they rebelled there. Nevertheless, He saved them again, verse 8, for the sake of His name. It says in verse 9, Thus He rebuked the Red Sea, and it dried up, and He led them through the deeps as through the wilderness. And so He saved them from the hand of the one who hated and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. The waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. And let me point out to you again that the biblical record does not allow for this to be a crossing of the Reed Sea. Remember the Reed Sea? Some have said that the Reed Sea was this little two-foot sea of water, kind of a marshland, and that's really what they crossed and a hot wind came through and it kind of dried up a bit so they could cross. It wasn't the Red Sea, it was the Reed Sea. Well, that's just ridiculous because the biblical record talks about him saving them, leading them through the deeps. You don't normally call two feet of water the deeps, you know, unless you happen to be like three years old and the water looks deep to you. He led them through the deeps, and the waters covered their adversaries, which I've said before would make a crossing of the Reed Sea even more miraculous, that the entire army of Pharaoh drowned in two feet of water. (laughs) The waters covered them. Not one of them was left. Then, and it's kind of a tragic word, then they believed His words, and they sang His praise. And he's talking about Exodus 15. Exodus 14 on into 15 is Miriam, Leads all the women of Israel in the tambourine shaking praise song, and they're all singing praises and hallelujah to the to the Lord after they cross the Red Sea. How much better is it before we cross the Red Sea? Before God delivers. Because praise that happens after the fact, once we've been delivered, it's kind of shallow. Because we look and we say, you know, I like I like Ryan's praise. I've been picking on you a lot lately, but it's just easy right now. But I like Ryan's praise. Praising God before the cancer was gone. Praising Him as He's looking down this, this dark tunnel, this Red Sea before Him. How am I going to get to the other side? I don't know, but praise God. He's in control. Shake the tambourine now. Don't do it when Tom Shorthouse is around. He hates tambourines in worship. So... Just know that. Shake it now, man. Praise Him now on this side because after the fact praise is never so deep as facing the hardship praise. Well, they praise Him after the fact. And in verse 13 it says, they quickly forgot His works. They did not wait for His counsel, but they craved intensely in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. And He gave them their request, but sent a wasting disease among them. And I like the way the King James translates this. He, sent, he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. Leanness into their soul. What happened? i got to read this one to you. You may remember Numbers chapter 11. If you want to flip back there quickly, or you can just listen. Numbers 11 and verse 4 says, The rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish, which we used to eat free in Egypt. The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. Mediterranean food. They're saying, we remember all that good food and that meat that we have back there. There's no meat out here. Just this manna. I guess they were tired of banana pancakes, you know. Tired of banana bread, manna <laughs> all the different manna foods that they had. They're tired of it. Our appetite's gone, verse 6, they say. There's nothing at all to look at except this manna. God provides miraculous food. It's not good enough. We want meat, they cry out. And so, God gave them meat. Down in verse 18, Say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. You shall eat meat. For you have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Oh, that someone would give us meat to eat. For we were well off in Egypt. (coughs) And you can hear the dripping sarcasm of the Lord here. As he says, Therefore, the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat. You shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you Because you've rejected the Lord who is among you And have went before Him saying Why did we ever leave Egypt? I just love the way God works Hilarious It says in verse 31 Now there went forth a wind from the Lord And it brought quail from the sea And let them fall beside the camp About a day's journey on this side And a day's journey on the other side All around the camp And about two cubits deep On the surface of the ground What are we talking about? A day's journey all the way around the camp, three feet deep of quail. And I can only imagine that people were out there with baseball bats, you know, just whacking them right and left. Why would I say that? Well, because it says the people spent all day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail, and he who gathered at least, the least gathered ten homers. The baseball bag of the homers. Sorry. And they spread them out for themselves. Some of you are going to get that Sunday morning. You're going to laugh and everybody's going to be looking at you. Like, what is laugh? Wednesday night, the homer with the baseball bat. Okay. That was a bad one. He who gathered the least gathered ten homers. And it says, now listen to this. This is just great. While the meat was still between their teeth before it was chewed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people and the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. Remember what he said before it would happen? You're going to have it a whole month until it comes out your nostrils. What happens when you vomit? I'm not meaning to gross you out. Well, okay, I am a little bit, but it, no one ever just throws up a little bit out of the mouth. When you vomit, you vomit out your face. Okay, that's what's going on here. Every orifice in the face wide open as it's coming back up. That's what got the plague. I don't know, bad quail, I guess. You know? unrefrigerated meat, they're eating and they're just glutting themselves on it and it's disgusting and my son Corey learned this when he was but two and a half years old and I've told this story before but it's just so good it was Easter Sunday and we were at some friends houses and, and, and Corey was just, he was having a great time and he had this little plate and he kept putting his food on it and it was stacked high and we thought, you know, it's not good for him, but it's Easter. Let him, let him eat. Let him enjoy. And he made this sandwich with Hawaiian sweetbread cut in half. And it had turkey and ham and jello and chocolate eggs and marshmallow bunnies, you know, peeps. All, and then he put it together and went Pew! and crammed it all together. And he ate the whole thing. He just was eating all day long. And guess what he did all night long? Out the nostrils. Literally, It was brutal. He threw up all. And we, got, we brought a pillow into the bathroom so we could lie down in between puking. It was so bad. Did you think you'd hear about this tonight coming in for, for Bible study? I'm not the one who said it's going to come out your nostrils. The Lord said that. And I point this out because, gang, this is exactly what happens. The carnal appetite demands a glut of feeding. We want meat. Carne. We want carne, you know, asada. We want the good stuff, the good meat. We want to just eat and eat, and so we do. The carnal appetite feeds and feeds and feeds until we're sick, sick, sick. And it all comes back up. And here's the thing about carnality. You fill up on it, but it leaves you empty. Feed on immorality and you're going to be left with a sick, meaningless life. Hunger after righteousness and you'll be filled up with a sweet, meaningful life. And God brings this contrast out so clearly in Scripture and in life. Here's the principle, man. Follow the Lord. Hunger after the things of righteousness and your life will be sweet and you will be filled and you will be satisfied and you'll always want more. But fill up on immorality and carnality... We get that word carne, it's from the Latin word carn. Carnal comes from carn, which means flesh. The fleshly life, the carnal life. And it just leaves you empty. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.6, These things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. They said, give us meat. God gave them meat, and they learned a valuable lesson and left most of it on the floor of the desert. First John chapter 2 verse 16 says all that is in the world the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life it's not from the father it's from the world. The world is passing away and its lusts like a bad meal gang it's passing away and you will be left empty. But the one who does the will of the father lives forever. A life dedicated to the will of God is a life illuminated with eternity going on verse 16 when they became envious of Moses in the camp and of Aaron the holy one of the Lord the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and engulfed the company of Abiram and a fire blazed up in their company and the flame consumed the wicked and that's what envy does envy consumes envy swallows up and it's why I believe the Lord calls us to be people who are content. Just be content. If you're not content, your envy is going to eat you alive. Be content. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. And envy is the opposite of contentment. But, but listen, it's interesting, in the context of this story, with Dathan and Abiram, They teach us something here. Contentment isn't just about possessions. It's about positions. Think about this. Contentment is not just about am I happy with what I have. My house or my particular vehicle or my furniture or whatever I have in my life. It's not just being content with my things, my possessions. Am I content in my position? David and Abiram were not envious of Aaron's wooden staff. They were envious of the authority that it represented. They were envious of the position of Moses and Aaron. Why do we have to follow these guys? Why can't one of us be in charge? And it was their position they were concerned with. And I had to be. I was convicted on this. Are you content with your position at work? Are you content with the position God has you in in your place of work or business? Now, I'm not saying ambition isn't necessarily a bad thing as long as it's godly. You know, it's not necessarily a bad thing to work hard and to to improve your situation at work. But are you content where God has you at this point in your life? Are you happy that the Lord has provided for you to be in the place you are at work? What about at home? Husbands, wives, are you content in your position? As a husband? As a wife? Are you content there? How about at church? Are you content with the position God has you in? Paul wrote this. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Verse 20, he said, Each man must remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. But if you're also able to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, who, he who was called while a free man is a slave of Christ. I like that. He says, You are bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which He was called. So be content with what you have, possessions, and be content with where you are, position. Where God has you. Because He has you where you are for a reason. And I guarantee it's a good reason. Verse 19. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a molten image. Thus they exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. And here's the key line. Verse 21. They forgot God their Savior. Remember what we said on Sunday? Forgetfulness causes faith to falter. They forgot about God And as they forgot about God Their faith went Their faith began to flicker The light of the world Israel, called to be the light of the world Was flickering Because they forgot about their father Psalm 103 verse 2 Bless the Lord, O my soul And forget none of His benefits Focus on what He's done for you And what He's doing for you And what you know He will do Don't forget Be faithful Verse 21 Going on, they forgot God their Savior who had done great things in Egypt, wonders in the land of Ham, awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore He said that He would destroy them had not Moses His chosen one stood in the breach before Him to turn His, way, his wrath away from destroying them. And then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe His word but grumbled in their tents They did not listen to the voice of the Lord. Therefore He swore to them that He would cast them down in the wilderness and He would cast their seed among the nations and scatter them in the lands. Numbers 14 talks about this, gang, how Israel's faith completely failed at Kadesh Barnea, the border of the promised land. And God was so angry. They said, we're not going in there. God said, I'll lead you in. We're not going in. They rebelled. Their faith went flat and God was so mad he turned to Moses and said that's it, they're done I'm going to wipe them out and you're going to be the numero uno I'm going to make a people of you no more singing Father Abraham has many sons it's going to be Father Moses because they blew it and God was furious why didn't he wipe them out? because Moses, verse 23 stood in the breach (laughs) <laughs> Moses he's just a little puny human guy God is fed up with his people Moses stands up and goes wait 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 God hold it don't do it Lord don't kill your people and Moses begins to remind God of God's promises what well, God knew about him all along in fact God knew exactly what he was doing at that time God wanted, I believe absolutely God wanted Moses to stand in the breach. What does that mean? Intercessory prayer. That's a great description right there of intercessory prayer. Stand in the breach. Moses was an intercessor. He intercedes for the people. He stands up and says, But Lord, Lord, you made promises to them. Keep your promises, Lord. Don't wipe them out. Forgive them. Give them a second chance here. And the Lord does. Moses stood in the breach. But but listen, before you give Moses too much credit here, in fact, before you give any intercessor too much credit, remember, remember who chose Moses to intercede for his people. Remember the same God who put compassion in Moses in the first place was the same God who spent 40 years training Moses how to be a shepherd so that he could shepherd his people Israel. The same God knew exactly what Moses would do when faced with this situation. God prepared Moses to stand in the breach. And in fact, you could say that Moses' intercession began with spirit inspiration. His intercession was inspired by the Spirit of God. All intercessory prayer. And Les and I have talked about this. All intercession begins with the Father. It doesn't start in my heart. It starts with the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit speaks to me what to pray, and I turn around and pray it. And that's how intercession works. It begins with God, and it ends with God. Because we don't know what we should pray, Paul says, Romans 8.26. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And so as we pray, just recognize that. Our prayer originates with the inspiration of the Spirit of God. So don't ever give the glory to the man praying, be it Moses or anyone else. You give the glory to God. And I've watched Les do this many times when people say, oh, i got to get Les to pray for me. And they come up, oh, thank you Pastor Les for praying and I, I see Les kind of duck. <laughs> you know what he's doing? He's letting the glory go to God. It's one of our favorite little phrases. I just duck down and let the glory go to God. So Moses interceded, God turned away from his anger, but even then... After the Kadesh problem, Israel continues rebelling. Verse 28. They joined themselves also to Baal Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. This is after the kafafel there on the the border of the promised land. Thus they provoked him to anger with their deeds, and the plague broke out among them. And then Phinehas stood up and interposed, which is a nice way to say what Phinehas actually did. He interposed, and so the plague was stayed, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness to all generations forever. You remember that story, Phineas? It's Numbers chapter 25. It's a great story. And in fact, this whole Psalm 105 and 106 details Exodus, Numbers, all the way through Deuteronomy, all the way to the coming into the promised land, Joshua Judges. So it's great that it's right here in book 4. Spencer, you were asking about that before. Book 4, the book that's connected to Numbers. This is all all these stories coming out of it. Numbers 25, Phineas gives us a picture of a real dedicated life. Quickly, Moses and the leaders of Israel are beside themselves. Because what's happening is the Israelite men are chasing the Moabite women. They're going after the prostitutes, the temple prostitutes of Baal Peor, of the temple of Baal. And they're enticed. And they're intermarrying. And something happens which shocks everyone. God, He sends out a plague on the people. And He tells Moses, Moses and the leaders, You gather up in the square in broad daylight all of those who are following after Baal and marrying themselves and sleeping with the women of the Moabites. And you kill them all. That's the only way I'm going to stop this plague. And what we have here is this picture. Let me read it to you. Numbers 25 verse 6. They're sitting there and, and they're weeping. Literally, Moses and the leaders because they, we got to kill people. How are we going to do this? Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. The description there is this, this guy brings this Moabite woman. Nah, 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 you can't do nothing about it. I'm taking her to my tent. Everybody see that? She's my choice. We're going to have ourselves, you know, a conversation in front of everybody. Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it. He arose from the midst of the congregation. He took a spear in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced them both through, the man of Israel and the woman, through the body. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. I call that sin on a stick. Okay, He speared them. Now, I love how David, or not David, but the psalmist here in Psalm 106, I love how he writes it. Phineas stood up and interposed. Yeah, he interposed. <laughs> Why is he considered righteous for this act of murder? Why does David, and now all down through history, it's reckoned to him for righteousness to all generations I'll tell you why. Because Phineas was not afraid to deal with the sin of the congregation. Because as far as Phineas was concerned, God's feelings mattered more than man's feelings. For Phineas, he was more in tune with holiness than political correctness, and it didn't matter if what he did was offensive to some, he needed to follow the word of the Lord. That's a dedicated life. And because his life was dedicated, now his life is illuminated as a picture of righteousness. But how, after all that had happened to them, how did Israel end up in this mess at Baal Peor? How did they end up flickering? Yet again, there's another backstory. You gotta go further back. King Balak of the Moabites, big kid, this guy was huge. King Balak, his, his coffin was described to be like the size of a piano case. I mean, it was huge. And King Balak hires Balaam, this kind of namby-pamby prophet, but he hires him, the seer, to curse Israel. And it's a marvelous story, again in Numbers 23 and 24. Balaam's hired, and he goes up to a ridge above the encampment of Israel, and he opens his mouth to curse, and blessing comes out. And he can't even stop himself. Not once, not twice, but three times. He clears his throat. <clears throat. Okay, let me try again. We'll get this. Balak and Balak's getting madder each time, and he opens up his mouth and blessing, blessing, blessing for Israel. <laughs> and a third time, let me just try. We'll get this. Blessing, blessing, blessing. It's wonderful. Numbers twenty four seventeen. As Balaam is trying to curse Israel, do you know he even gives? the first, or, or a little prophecy of the birth of Jesus? He says in Numbers twenty four seventeen, I see Him, but not now. I behold Him, but, but not near. A star <laughs> shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. 1,500 years later, a star shone over the little town of Bethlehem and a star was born. The scepter, the ruler, the authority, Jesus Christ. From among the Jewish people. So how did Israel, so blessed, I mean all they're getting from this prophet is blessing, 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 how did they end up in such a mess? Well Balaam finally pulls Balak aside and says, Listen, I can't curse Israel. But they can curse themselves. And here's how you do it. And Balaam teaches Balak to get the Moabites together and not fight Israel, but compromise. Let's just send some of our cuter Moabite girls over there. We'll just, you know, we'll hang out, we'll invite them to our parties. We won't say, you have to deny your God to come to the party at our temple. We'll just say, no, no, you can believe in your God, just come hang out. We'll just share a few drinks, have a few laughs. Compromise. And they begin to Compromise. Until all of Israel is messed up at Baal Peor. I point that out because that is a problem that is beginning to plague the last days church. And in fact, Jesus picks up on this in Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, and he writes a letter to one of the churches directly in service right now in the last days. In Revelation 2 14, he says, I have a few things against you. Because you have there some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to to idols and to commit acts of immorality. What's the issue, Jesus? Compromise. Compromise within the church. It's not people saying, I don't believe in Jesus. It's saying, I believe in Jesus, but I also accept these other teachings. Compromise. Compromise. I believe in the Word of God mostly except for where it you know, doesn't really fit with science and then I have to go science. Compromise. Well, I'll accept some of the truths of the Bible but I like some of the teachings of Buddha too. Compromise. And it's Balaam. And Jesus says, I hold this against you because it's faith watered down and mixed up. They also provoked in verse 32 to wrath at the waters of Meribah. And so it went hard with Moses on their account because they were rebellious against his spirit. He spoke rashly with his lips. His spirit in verse thirty-three. That that could be a little h or a capital. It could be God's spirit. It could be Moses' spirit being talked about there. But the bottom line is because they provoked Moses, he lost his passport to the promised land. Bad situation for Moses. He spoke rashly. Remember what happened there? It's Numbers chapter twenty. Moses gets angry. The people are thirsty. And they're whining about their thirst. And Moses just, he'd had it. You know, red-faced. God says, they're thirsty. That's cool. Speak to the rock, Moses. Speak to the rock and, and I'll provide water for the people. That was God's heart, His intention. Moses takes his staff and he strikes the rock. And he calls everybody morons. He does. You look it up. Numbers 20. The, the word choice that he uses for the people of Israel is, the root word is idiots. You idiots! Bam! And he strikes the rock. God in His grace causes the water to flow and the people drink, but he says, Moses, you just lost the promised land. You're not going in. Now this is interesting to me, because just earlier at Kadesh Barnea, God was so angry He wanted to wipe out all of Israel. And here now, at the waters of, of Mirabah, Moses loses his temper. Okay, Moses is angry. What's the big deal? How is that such a big deal that he loses the promised land? And God, you were angry before. How does that work? Listen, God's anger was right on. Because what God was angry about at Kadesh Barnea was the failure of their faith was because they looked at him and after all he had done for them, they said, we don't trust you. We will not believe you. We don't think that you're strong enough, God, to lead us into the promised land and we won't go. And God's anger was a righteous anger because all that he was trying to teach them, all that he brought them through, was about faith and they wouldn't believe him. Moses' anger was really kind of pathetic. They were thirsty. They were complaining and it ticked him off. And so he hit the rock and he yelled at them. And it wasn't a righteous anger, it was rash. God's response was righteous and sane. Moses' response was, well, he struck the rock and he struck out. And it's more serious than that because he misrepresented God. That was not God's intention for the people. God did not call the people morons. God was not even angry with the people. He understood that thirst will bring about sometimes complaining. Did he enjoy their complaining? No. But they were thirsty. He got it. Okay, speak to the rock. Moses misrepresented God. Don't ever misrepresent the grace of God. I'll tell you what, if I'm going to be wrong about one thing, and I mentioned those letters earlier on that I've been sent, if I'm going to be wrong about one thing, I will be wrong about grace. I would rather stand before God and say, we talked too much about grace, than stand before God and say, we scared too many people off talking about hell. Now we're going to talk about hell when it comes up in Scripture, and we're going to talk about the truth of judgment, and if you've been here any amount of time, you know that. But I'd rather err to the side of grace. If we're going to fail anywhere, let's fail as incredibly gracious and loving people. Moses misrepresented a gracious God, and you know what else he did? He messed up a glorious prophecy. If Moses had done what God told him to do, consider the picture. (coughs) Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ? The rock rock out of which the water flowed was a picture of Jesus. So consider this. The first time the people are thirsty, God says, Moses, strike the rock. He struck the rock and the water flowed. Now, if Moses had followed the picture, Jesus, the first time God said, strike the rock, just as Christ, our rock, was struck on the cross. He was struck and the water flowed out of his body along with blood signifying his death that he would die one time. One time the rock was going to be struck and Christ would die once. The second time, what does God say to Moses? Speak to the rock and the water will flow. And had Moses done so, the picture we would have, he who believes in me, Jesus said, from his innermost being, will flow rivers of living water, the Holy Spirit. All you have to do, Christians, we walk with the Lord. You need more of His Spirit? Ask. Speak to the rock. Moses hit the rock and messed up a really cool prophecy in doing so. He didn't see what he was doing because of his rashness. We don't always know what the purposes of God are. Moses couldn't possibly have put together what God was trying to paint, that marvelous picture of Christ, the rock. The rock. But when we misrepresent the nature and character of God, we certainly can mess up his purposes. We can confuse them, at least for other people. Well, the years of wandering ended, and Israel entered the land. We're almost done, verse 34. They did not destroy the peoples. Remember, God told them with Joshua, you go in there and you wipe them out. Why? They were wicked. Evil. It was a bad state there. In fact, listen, as the Lord commanded them, they, they didn't do it, verse 35, but they mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters whom they sacrificed to the idol of Canaan and the land was polluted with Their blood. Did you you see in the news? I couldn't believe this. In Virginia, at um, Tyson's Corner Mall, just a couple of days ago, perhaps maybe yesterday, a family was walking across an overpass from the mall to the parking garage, about three stories up, and a grandma picked up the two year old child and threw it off and killed her. Unbelievable. I read this. What? And they don't know why. That's hope, all you know. Investigation, trying to figure out what was her motive, why would she do something as horrendous as this? Listen, I tell you that to shock you for this reason: they sacrificed their sons and daughters. Don't look at this as some Old Testament thing. That well, yeah, it's, it's sick, but it's so far back in history, it really doesn't have impact. They killed their sons and daughters, just like that grandma did. How can you do that? How is it possible? They sacrificed them to the idols of Canaan. The land was polluted with blood. They became unclean in their practices and they played the harlot in their deeds. How can you do this? Now listen, I've got to comment on this one thing. The sacrifices describe Molech worship. And we've talked about that before. Molech was that big iron idol and his belly was a furnace and his arms would be heated up, sizzling red hot and they would put infants on the arms of Molech to sacrifice them. And they would sizzle and burn and fall into the furnace. And that was the sacrifice of Molech. But, as horrible as that sounds, in the day, it was actually considered quite intellectually sound. A very sane practice. For it would appease Molech and bring about success. Besides the fact that the Canaanites taught they weren't actually killing a child. That the spirit of that child would immediately just move on to the next, thus making that child nothing more than a, a sacrifice of flesh, not a real child. This is how the pagan noggin thinks. Okay, it's all worked out here. The spirit of the child goes on to the next child, and American culture believes the same thing. We're doing the same thing. Abort the fetus, it's not really a child. It's just flesh. It's just a blob of tissue. It's not a child, it's a choice. <laughs> you heard that one? It's not an altar, it's a clinic. And besides, you have to sacrifice this child because it'll mess up your life otherwise, and you want to be successful, right? You want to have a a good life. We're doing the same thing. I know that's harsh. But it's just no different. Verse 40. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against His people, and He abhorred His inheritance. And then He gave them into the hand of the nations, and those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them, and they were subdued under their power. Many times He would deliver them. They, however, were rebellious in their counsel and so sank down in their iniquity. The psalmist just laying it out. Man, it was bad. Nevertheless And here's where the table turns. He looked upon their distress when He heard their cry and He remembered His covenant for their sake and relented according to the greatness of His loving kindness. His grace. I don't think you can talk too much about grace. It should be grace, 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 love, love, love. Because without that we have no hope, no chance. He made them objects of compassion in the presence of all their captors. Incredible for all we've just read. And the horrific things that Israel did and the stupid mistakes and the failures and the abject sin, God made them objects of compassion to their captors. God looked at His people and said, in spite of all this, for the sake of my name and my character, I am going to show you grace. Do you see what the psalmist is doing here? In Psalm 106, he's saying, Lord, we've sinned. But they did too. And you forgave them. Lord, we we flickered in our fickleness, but so did they, and you remained faithful. The psalmist here, as he tells the whole story of Israel from the human sinful perspective, in contrast to the godly perspective in Psalm 105, the psalmist is, is here saying, Lord, I am appealing to your grace. If you could be gracious with our forefathers, I know you're gracious by nature, and you will be gracious to us as well. And that's why we talk about grace so much here. That's that's why the grace of Jesus Christ is paramount in the fellowship of believers. Our only appeal is His loving kindness. Our only hope is His grace. Psalm 105 and 106 say the exact same thing, that in spite of our faithless, fickle, flickering tendencies, God is a God of absolute faithfulness and amazing grace. And so the psalmist ends, Save us, O Lord our God, gather us from among the nations to give thanks to Your holy name and glory in Your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen, Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And that final Hallelujah concludes Book 4 of the Psalms. Sunday we pick up Book 5, the Deuteronomic section of the Psalms. Let me end with, with this. I landed hard on the issue of abortion because it's such a tragic issue in our country. And yet I recognize that there are those who have abortion in their past. And I don't know if it was any of you. I really don't know. I'm, I'm not sure. And I may just be speaking to someone who's going to hear this on, a, on the website at another time. But the reality is, as, as tragic a decision as that is, it is forgivable. And I am absolutely convinced, based on what the Scriptures say, that the child, which was not a blob of tissue, but is spirit, is with the Lord. That doesn't make it okay. But God even shows great compassion in that That child. My wife and I had a miscarriage in between Corey and Hannah. I believe I'll see, see that child someday. And so if you've ever been in the position, ladies, where you've made that choice, or men, where you've unfortunately been with a woman and encouraged her to make that choice. It's wrong. It's sin. But it's forgivable. And your peace is in knowing that God is greater even than our worst failures. I just want to end with this question. Does God ever forget His people? He just doesn't forget. He never forgets Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? God says Isaiah 49:15 even these may forget but I will not forget you And Israel's the picture of that of a God who keeps a promise to a people no matter how much they have messed it up and I say praise God because no matter how much I've messed it up in my life he hasn't forgotten me and his grace still extends to me. And after this psalm was written, Psalm 106, roughly 250 years of silence passed. From the last Hebrew prophet, Malachi, suddenly things got very quiet. Even scholars today call the time between the Testaments, between Malachi and then the the coming of Jesus in the New Testament, John the Baptist, they call those the silent years. Israel began to wonder, has God forgotten us? And then the miracle occurred. There in 168, the miracle. A day's worth of oil burning for eight days. Yeah, I, I do believe it was miraculous. I do believe that in that small miracle, God was saying, I haven't forgotten. I've got a plan. I'm doing something here. I have not forgotten my people. And so today, the world over, Jewish people celebrate Hanukkah. Feast of dedication. Feast of illumination. Israel that had the opportunity to be the light of the world. But their rebellion overshadowed their dedication. And so they flickered. And yet God still did not forget. And you and I know marvelously this month, we celebrate Jesus' coming. The star of Jacob. The one, even Balaam, the weird little prophet, said... I see Him, not now, but I see Him. A star will rise out of Jacob. And even as we celebrate Christmas, remember that Christ came that we might be dedicated to the Lord through Him and illuminated ourselves lights for the world. Matthew 5.16 Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. And Father, I pray for illumination. Even, Lord, as you draw us forward in dedication. We have seen a marvelous story, the whole gamut of the story of Israel, Lord, from your calling Abraham all the way to bringing to the promised land and beyond. And God, you have shown yourself faithful. Across the years and decades and centuries and millennia of this world, you have shown yourself faithful to your people Israel and faithful, Lord Jesus, to your people, the church. May we learn to be dedicated and faithful to you by the power of your Spirit within us, illuminated, Lord, that we can be the light to the world that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.